This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. In 2016, the prestigious Oxford Dictionary chose the word post-truth as its word of the year. Post-truth? I thought that was two words joined to one. Well, they made it into one word. Post-truth, the word of the year. Now, why was it the word of the year? Well, because it was being used so much. But what does it mean? Well, here's what they said it meant. Post-truth is the condition relating to or defining circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Did you get that? Well, today on Viewpoint, we're going to unfold the meaning of that in very specific applications because it's affecting you, it's affecting your children, your grandchildren, the congregation in which you are worshiping, it's affecting your pastor, it's affecting everything in our country, and not just the public schools and universities. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. This idea of post-truth. And a lot of it connects with a word, or a, a pair of words, that have become very popular, very much talked about, in the last, uh, say, 10 years. Maybe 15. The word or pair of words, social justice. Social justice. Now, if you've been reading your Bible lately, you'll notice that the word justice occurs rather frequently in the Bible. But it doesn't talk about social justice per se. So is there a difference between the justice of the Bible and the social justice that is being promoted today under the gospel of post truth. Well, that's what we want to talk about here on Viewpoint today. And I'm glad that you joined us. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. And indeed, our conversation today can be transforming for you if you grasp the, the seriousness, the depth of what we're talking about here today and its influence in your home, in your congregation, in your school, everywhere we go. Yes, even in the places that you shop. Everywhere. Now, the Bible says this. It's famously quoted there for the book of Amos, Let justice, let justice roll down as a mighty stream. It's a wonderful passage, but what does it mean? What is biblical justice anyway? Well, I've tried to coin a definition for biblical justice that at least can enra- uh, wrap its arms around in a very simple way what God's heart was concerning this matter of justice. And that is to treat people that are made in his image honorably, fairly, and truthfully. Honorably, fairly, and truthfully. There are no outcomes that are defined. It's a matter of the attitude of our hearts displayed in how we treat people. Let justice roll down as a mighty stream. Well, that would solve an awful lot of things with regard to racism and 
all of these other issues, I think. But the problem is it's not deemed to be sufficient. That's not the new postmodern social justice. And our kids are being indoctrinated with this new social justice. Our young people in our colleges and universities, yes, indeed, even Christian universities. Oh, yeah, I've had to battle it in the Christian university that I graduated from, summa cum laude, served on the board, and have still had to battle with it since 1967 when I graduated. It's everywhere. And today on Viewpoint, to help us deepen this conversation and apply it, is uh, a new friend of this ministry, Chuck Mason. Uh, He has written a book called How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice? And uh, it's actually a relatively simple book, not simple-minded, but simple. It's only 100 pages, but let me tell you, it packs a wallop. It's so helpful. I have underlined over and over and over. And so I want to welcome Chuck Mason to the program here today. Chuck, it's good to have you on the program from Pennsylvania. Well, uh, thank you, Charles. I appreciate it. And it's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the opportunity to uh, have this conversation with you and share. Well, you and I, at least for a few uh uh, months shared some common air down there, uh, s- smog infested as it was in the San Gabriel Valley. Uh, I actually was still practicing law in 1993 when you were there admiring the San Gabriel Mountains from your uh, class there at Fuller Theological Seminary. And uh, so I understand that town. I understand the place. I know all about it. And there you were in 1993, the same year we formed Save America Ministries to rebuild the foundations of faith and freedom as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation, America's greatest crisis hour. So that's our connection there. And uh, that leads us to this uh, wonderful little book. But what is it that really caused you uh, to focus on this, seeing that you were there getting your MDiv, Master of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary. Well, you know, when I when I arrived at Fuller, we uh, encountered a term, a word called postmodern, postmodern, postmodernity, mm-hmm. and it, nobody really knew what it was. And uh, but we, it was all the consensus was this is a force that'll have to be reckoned. And by the time I, I, I had to take a break to uh, make some kind of take degree, degree, but when I went back, it was a force to be reckoned with. And I have wrestled with postmodern philosophy and culture um, and Marxism and all these things throughout my, my post-time. It's always been my intellectual life and my ministry. Mm-hmm. But I wrote the book because I was watching social justice, which is simply an adaptation of Marxism to our contemporary culture. I was watching social justice have an impact on my kids. On my, I have two sons that were um, young teenagers at the time, being in part of the school system that they were. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I reacted like any parent. I tried to muscle them out of it, because we, we want to have control. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to get them back focused on the gospel and off of this. And it really, you know, it didn't really work. And I had to step back and go, I've got to rethink this. These are my kids. So what I did was I used my training in apologetics and uh, and debate from Fuller and uh, my concepts in understanding postmodern philosophy and uh, social justice to develop a method to challenge this with them. 
and it has been extremely effective. Both of my sons are don't have any want to have anything to do with woke at this point. So that's kind of the journey. But I wrote this to be a resource for parents who really kind of felt hopeless and not knowing where to turn. Well, you say as parents, it's unimaginable. <clears throat> we feel entirely powerless. Uh, not knowing what to do or how to challenge indoctrination. And what you did not know is that I am uh, three-quarters through my 11th book called, this is called, When Persecution Comes. And one of the avenues for persecution in Christian homes now is coming precisely through this avenue of wokeism and uh, social justice. It's stirring up animosity in homes, creating tensions. It's a big deal. We'll be right back after this, friends. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. So good to have you with us today, my friends, as we're confronting, as always, the deepest issues that touch our hearts and our homes from God's eternal perspective or viewpoint. And indeed, parents are being increasingly frustrated. Uh, I remember talking to a dear relative of mine who has uh, children that are in their 20s, and uh, one of the great frustrations there even though they've been raised in a, uh, a evangelical church of strong beliefs and so on, the children are now doing argument with their parents concerning the issue of homosexuality, the LGBTQ, and all of the other issues, and saying, well, how can we have such a strong val- uh, position there? Doesn't Jesus love everybody? Well, it's all based, friends, on the lordship of feelings over the faith once delivered to the saints. And therein lies one of the biggest problems that we're facing. Uh, You write about that, uh, uh, Chuck, right there in your book, this lordship of feelings that has replaced facts and replaced truth. Yeah, absolutely. And what happened was, the postmodern movement took advantage of the fact that we we claim facts are, are absolute knowledge possibly, or that we say that since God exists, truth is objective, and it's self-evident, and in many ways undoubtable. But the issue is we can doubt everything, and facts aren't as precise as we think they are. Well, if you, um, if you want to doubt them, you can and will. Exactly. People can doubt. So what the postmodern movement they trafficked in was this doubt. And they said, well, if I can doubt it, it doesn't mean that it's objective. So your whole platform, including facts and logic, are corrupt. And we're going to throw them out, and we're going to throw the culture out that was built upon those. So when, But that caused people to reject use of logic and rational thought and facts as the method we deter, use to determine what is real and accurate about the world. But when you displace that, you need a replacement for it. Right. And so the, 
well, the replacement ended up being, in, in something in philosophy, it's called emotivism, but it's really, we rely on our feelings now. So mm-hmm. our feelings are the, are the tools that we use to dictate what is real and true and right about the world. You know what's and interesting about that? World is. You, you so, talked about uh, feelings, but you also, in your book, talked about experience. And I want to share with you something that goes ba- all the way back to Fuller Seminary now. Because there was a grand, uh, a meeting of the grand poobahs, so to speak, there at the Vatican with the Pope a few years ago. I wrote about this in my book, uh, King of the Mountain. And uh, one of those that was there was a fellow from Fuller Seminary by the name of Mel Roebuck. I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, but he was there. What's that? No, it does. I believe I had a class. I took a class from him. All right. Well, Mel Roebuck was there among these others there at the Vatican. And here was his position. And I quote him in my book, King of the Mountain. He said that we no longer can rely upon biblical facts and biblical truth we've gone beyond that now we have to rely upon experience therefore everything that we're doing teaching and promoting in the name of christ has to be based solely on experience it was just another way of saying based solely upon your feelings that came directly from a key representative from Fuller Theological Seminary, one of the premier uh, seminaries in the country and the world. You see how this is spreading? It's everywhere. Well, it is everywhere. I totally agree with you. The problem the Church has always had throughout its history is sorting through culture. And unfortunately, culture leaves an impact upon the Church. Um, And... for whatever reason, people do give in and they do sway. The, the, the challenge has always been, as we see through the prophets, especially when they stood on truth, they stood on the truth of God's Word, mm-hmm. and they stood on the truth of God's existence and what He had spoken into their hearts. Uh, and that, that ends up being a precious commodity throughout history at times. Well, it does. Um, it absolutely does. And it... Um, you know, what's happening, too, and you're seeing this in our in our children, what you had mentioned, was they, they sit in church and they hear the truth from the pulpit, and we're hoping they do. And, uh, but then they're... <laughs> you know where I'm going, okay? That's, is that a fact or a, a feeling or a hope? <laughs> well... <laughs> it depends on I, where you are to the time you're hearing it. <laughs> well, let me let me push this out further because part of the work I do takes a look, very deep dive into why our sixty two thirds of our kids are walking away from God whenever they get out of the house. Uh huh. Um, and we know that's the case. Those are Barnett statistics. They're rock solid from year to year. It's it's it's, it's heartbreaking. Right. But but their Ligonier Ministries did a uh, state of theology in the church, um, and they found that over fifty percent of of conservative Christian adults hold views about God that would have been considered heretical through the history of the Church. No question. I mean, we're not doing a good... Yeah, no question. And and our, our young adult, our young kids are, are higher than that. So my point is, truth is, a, is becoming that... It's there, but it's becoming something that people are, are avoiding, even within the Church. So I say, you know, you hope that pastors are sticking to the truth of the Word and our historic message of, of the person of God and salvation in Christ. 
But there's so much capitulation these days, and it's tiny, little by little by little by little. Exactly. Incrementalism. Well, let's let's take a look at this. I mean, you you were there in Southern California for a while, and Mm -hmm. uh, as I indicated, as a public school teacher, we were sent to Palos Verdes, California, uh, in 1969 to be inculcated on the weekends as school teachers uh, to be inculcated with the new educational philosophy. And it was all about the, in, it was the, called the encounter movement, and it was all about shifting our, our conversations, our teaching, our talking, not using facts, but using I feel. I feel, I feel. And that began right there in 1969 in California, metastasized through the entire educational system from California across the country, and then in the church in the 1970s through the God is Love movement that was getting rid of the whole idea of the God of truth and justice and judgment, it made its way through the church through the pulpits of America, and even the music in the church, so that it was all about feelings, and out went the foundations of the faith. A hundred percent. And, you know, we're losing this concept of truth within our society, and we're losing it within the church. And if we don't have truth, and if we don't have truth as conveyed through, you know, our understanding of God's Word, and our doctoral positions in theology of the Church, in terms of who is the person of God and who is Christ and what is salvation, we end up being on that, we are on that very slippery slope. Yeah. Um, which is why you have so many people that, um, you know, hold views that the Church really had condemned throughout its history. And that's kind of pointing in that direction. Um, again, one of the hardest things, one of the things I saw when I was at Fuller, when you take Church history, is you look at different ages of the church and you go, how could you, how could you do that during that period of time? Mm-hmm. But the church was reflecting its culture. And unfortunately that, that ends up happening. And this is our cultural reflection today. Yeah. But our cultural reflection rejects truth. And if we lose objective truth and who that, and how we understand that truth as being the person of God, then we lose, in many ways, we erode the foundations of our faith. And that's a very, very, very slippery slope to be on. Well, it's particularly slippery if we realize that we're in the on the near edge of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and uh, there's going to be a massive falling away, precisely because the majority of people have shed their allegiance to the truth, the absolute truth of God and His Word, and are living by feelings, not by faith. It's going. It leaves them so vulnerable to receive such infamous things as the mark of the beast and other kinds of persecution. That uh, to me, uh, we're li- these are the serious, most serious dangers uh, that we're uh, we're facing. In fact, you make an interesting statement that I highlighted. Kids are like intellectual sheep sent to the ideological slaughter. Now that'll preach. That that is a great statement. Kids are like intellectual sheep sent to the ideological slaughter. Whoa. What do we do about that, Mr. Mason? Well, there are two things we need to do. The first is, you know, not everybody, not every parent can move their kid from one school to the next. Not every parent can put their kid into a private school. So 
And even if they did, they'd still get the infection. Well, they would. I mean, my, my didn't COVID was, make it into private schools? Well, yeah, but I, <laughs> I can tell you that when I when I apply these methods to my 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 boys, my oldest one said, "I'm out of this high school." He went to a private Catholic school because they had a great baseball program. Oh, so, okay. we, we, so we, it was we not the truth, but baseball that lured him. Well, no, it was the truth. <laughs> Wait, no, 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 no. We had it was either between a, 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 a private. There were two private Christian. Uh-huh. The one had a baseball program and the other didn't. Oh, okay. So, so he went to the program that had the baseball program. All right. But my point to this is there are things that parents can absolutely do to help protect their kids, even if they are in a public school. Um, so what, what what is that, Chuck? Give us uh, one, two, three. What, what things can people that are listening, whether they be parents or grandparents, what can they do? Well, the, the first thing I tell people is most people are caught off, they're caught flat-footed. They're caught off guard. There was just no way for us to ever conceive that a, a, an ideology like transgenderism would make it through our school system and through our through culture with any level of affirmation, certainly the level of affirmation it does. So most uh-huh. parents, it doesn't matter whether it's that or critical race theory or cancel culture, they're caught flat-footed, and they really don't know what to do. And that's understandable. Because these ideological positions are, are, you know, the product of 150-plus years of intellectual development. Okay. They're complex. So you do need to get some, some information and training and guidance. And once you have some information and some guidance, it doesn't take a tremendous amount like you've seen. You said that book packs punch. But once you get that information, then you can begin to challenge the impact of the ideologies with the right using the information with the right questions. The second thing that a parent needs to do is you need to start building a relationship with your children. One of the things we know, even in Christian homes, is that parents are not spending much time, like kids are in the house, mm-hmm. but parents aren't spending any time in conversation with their children. They're right, because everybody's on their cell phone. Uh-huh. And so let me, let me put this into perspective for parents. A child spends about 10 to 12 hours a week in direct conversation with the parent. They're under the parent's roof, and everybody's getting along. But in terms of having conversation about any any significant topic, let alone social justice, mm-hmm. they're spending 30 to 40 hours a week on their phones and involved in social media. So you see the imbalance. Yeah. So what parents need to do is they need to spend one-on-one time with their children. They need to spend one-on-one time building relationship and learning how to have conversation with their kids. And actually having those conversations, no matter how risky it may feel. Friends, you want to get a copy of the book, How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice? How to Protect Your Kids from the Woke Indoctrination of Public Schools. In fact, not just public schools, everywhere. $13 is going to put it in your hands. It's on our website, saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA. That's 1-800-SAVE-USA. Or write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. We've got to have tools. It's not enough to decry the darkness. You see, we've got to shed light into the darkness. And, uh, you know, even one candle light will dispel an awful lot of darkness. So let's be some candlelights out there this year in our homes. In fact, let's be lighthouses in our homes. 
Yeah, we need to be a lighthouse. Did you know, by the way, friends, that a lighthouse is not there to make you feel good? The purpose of a lighthouse is to be the prophet of the seas to warn ships not to get too close to danger. That's the purpose of a lighthouse, contrary to popular thought. So uh, our talk today with Chuck Mason is kind of a lighthouse talk. How do we talk to my kids about social justice? We've got to come to grips with this, friends. Otherwise, uh, their whole moral trajectory is going to be turned upside down. And when we get back from this break, I'm going to share some statistics with you that might be shocking. We'll show you just how far our young people have drifted. And that was early on in the social justice movement. We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint, friends. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. It's conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. About 15 years ago, the uh, well-known researcher George Barna, who had joined us many times here on this program, gave us a report. And here's what he said. Only about 50% of American Christian adults believe in absolute truth. That was then. But among our young people, he said only about 9% of professing Christian young people believe in absolute truth. Now, that was about 15 years ago. Now, let's consider the implications of that. The same George Barna, about 10 years ago, through further research, discovered that only about 20% of professing Christian young people believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Do you know what that means? That means they've already bought into postmodernism. They've already bought into feelings trump truth, and they trump faith. And you don't necessarily have to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior because there are many ways, and we're going to elevate our feelings about whether people are otherwise good people as to whether or not they've received salvation through Jesus Christ. Do you understand the implications of this, friend? 
80% of professing Christian young people 10 years ago did not believe that Jesus Christ was the only way, the only truth, and the only life. 80%. In other words, they've already abandoned the faith. Where does that set them with regard to the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is going to judge the world in righteousness and according to his truth? Not according to our feelings, according to his truth. You see, here on this program, we are attempting to apply truth, apply the word of God to the issues of our time. And you have to be willing to do it in a way that grabs people's attention. You can't dance around the corners. You can't play footsie with the devil. And that's what we're doing. Yes, we just don't want to offend anybody. We want everybody to feel good. No, the Bible isn't talking about helping us to feel good. It's about helping us to be good. From God's perspective, righteousness is the heart of justice. Our special guest today, Chuck Mason, with his book, How Do I Talk to My Kids About Social Justice. Uh, I'll tell you, Chuck, these things uh, really grip my mind and my heart. And I'll t- right there in the San Gabriel Valley, California, Pasadena, the Queen City there, with the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl and all of that stuff, I was on the board of a Christian day school, a, the largest Christian elementary school there. I was chairman of the board. I became the chair, the uh, a member of the board of directors for a significant Christian university at the east end of the San Gabriel Valley. And what I saw in those years, in the 1970s and into the early 1980s, was the earliest manifestation of what you're talking about in your book. It was already making its way through our educational system, our Christian educational system at that very time. Are you aware of that? You know, I, I from all the, the study of philosophy and history and that I've done, uh, my eyes have been opened as to how long this has been moving through. Um, and, and really, the, the people that wanted to make the change, the Marxists and the postmodernists, they knew that getting into our institutions would transform America. And that was a very specific goal that they had in mind, that they knew it would be effective, and we're seeing that. Well, that was the um, goal of John Dewey uh, back there in the formation of the public school system. He was the principal educational philosopher of America, and uh, Horace Mann being credited with the uh, foundation of the public school system. Those two boys worked together to establish humanism and to transform America through the public school system to indoctrinate them in anti-God counterfeit truths. That's how it started. You're absolutely right. One of the things that, it's kind of where I'm going with, with the ministry work that I do, one of the things I try to impress upon people, we as Christians here in America have lived a bit of a charmed life. We've been able to go to work and go home and not really worry about the transformations of our culture, and that's led Uh us to believe that we're a bit impenetrable. You know, there's nothing that can topple us. In other words, we've had an idea that America is so exceptionalistic 
that the kinds of things that have happened around the world or in other countries could never happen here. A hundred percent. But yet we've seen those things happening. And I think one of the most, one of the most difficult, here's what I tell people. You take a look at the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. Under David, they had no, no parallel in, in terms of God's presence and David's leadership being guided by the prophets and the spirit, and it was an exceptional time. Mm-hmm. Solomon comes along, and he begins, it seems, to learn, lead from the wisdom that God gave him. There's no prophet in Solomon's life. right? And on Solomon's death, his sons, in, in a bid for the throne, cut the nation in half, mm-hmm. and the northern ten tribes become Samaria. Nations can transform and, and, and implode in very short amounts of you mean this country could have that happen too, or is it already happening? Well, it is already happening, and one of the things that I I'm, I mentioned very briefly, but we we really truly are watching a truly post Christian culture emerge mm-hmm. in America. Yeah, and that's what the left is doing with critical race theory, with DEI, with LGBTQ, with climate, with all of these initiatives, all of these social engineering programs are using Marxism and post-truth as their foundations for reality and morality. They're All right, so what are- would you say, Chuck, to uh, a Christian, a sincere Christian, who, say, is African-American, and because they're African-American, they're caught up and uh, given the responsibility to head up a DEI uh, leadership in an entire state? What would you say? Would Well... I would tell that I would tell that individual that we need he would need to understand the Marxist roots of DEI and a way to engage that to, to come up with a policy that flips DEI and to and you know, I have a I have a, I have a resource on my website that will do that for people as part mm-hmm. of this. But the issue becomes if you're a Christian and you find yourself coming up against these things, my my. My statement to you is that it is imperative for us to get informed to understand how we work, because we cannot create intelligent, informed, critical responses to these if we don't. And again, going back to what I said earlier, this is talking 150 or more years of intellectual development here, which means we are behind the curve. And unfortunately, the time in history doesn't give us the option to go to punt down the road. We really have to get equipped to get engaged wherever we find ourselves in the culture war. And, you know, that's what my ministry is all about. But, unfortunately, we've, we've thought America was impenetrable for far too long. There's been too much development. And so we are back on our heels at the moment, to be sure. All right. Just last week, I had a nice chat with my longtime friend, Dr. James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, who for the last nine years has headed up Family Talk. And uh, he said, uh, Chuck, um, I'm 87 years old now, and my voice isn't what it used to be, and uh, I just uh, don't have quite the energy that I used to have. And uh, so I reminded him that 15 years ago, he joined me on the air live from the floor of the Nasser Religious Broadcasters Association. And here's what he said. Chuck, we have already lost the culture wars. 
Now, he was one of the foremost culture warriors of our time. In fact, he's the only surviving one of the original seven. He said, 15 years ago, we have lost the culture wars. So what is this war we're waging then? Are we still waging the culture wars? Or are we waging something else that's even more severe? Well, if you take a look at the culture war from an earthly realm, we have two different worldviews. One deals with Marxism and post-truth, and that's the emerging new worldview of the left, that they want to become mm-hmm. the paradigm for America. All right. Traditional, traditional America is what, our, as Christians, we would recognize. That's where we use facts and logic, and we use God's Word as the moral, as moral guidance to create our culture. So we have two completely antithetical and ideologically opposed worldviews mm-hmm. fighting for essentially the right to control our social architecture and concepts of truth and morality and what our institutions look like. And can we have polyamorous transgender marriage, or is are we going to, to hold on to our biblical truths about what God has given us in terms of male and female mm-hmm. and honoring, honoring marriage and preserving sexuality within that? So that's what the culture war is on an earthly realm. Okay. Um, you know, I... I almost agree, like, I fight this every day. This is my ministry, this is what I prepare for. Mm-hmm. But I do understand where, where he says, I do agree with Dr. Dobson. Mm-hmm. And I often wonder if it isn't going, if, if before Christ comes, it doesn't take, it, it's going to take some form of a, an upheaval of some kind from God's level to shake us out of the direction we're going. You don't think that's because, happening as we speak? How, many, uh, well, how much greater does the shaking have to be? I'm talking about maybe, you know, spending really when this debt crisis hits and we go through a significant economic collapse. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about something on, on that, that go, goes deeper than where we I are see. right now. Okay, well, you we'll know. pick up on that after the break. How do I talk to my kids about social justice? $13 is going to put this simple book in your hands, friends, to give you a tool as to how to respond. It's on our website, saveus.org. Call us, 1-800-SAVE-USA. Write to us. We'll be right back. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by His Spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, Behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Before we dig deeper into more serious things, uh, I have a lurking question on my mind, uh, Chuck, and that is when you were at Fuller in 1993, was Rob Johnson still the provost of Fuller? Uh, 
I believe he was. Okay. You want to know what my connection is? I would love to know that. He and I went to fifth grade together. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. And he and his family were in the same church where I met my wife, the Evangelical Covenant Church in California there in Pasadena. And... Uh, they were in the same youth group. That's, that's pretty As my, neat. Yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing how all these connections come together. And uh, I, I don't know why it is that the Lord uh, put me in situations where I'm connected with so many, many, many of these folk. But uh, I just thought it was a curiosity thing for me. Okay. Uh, we move forward here, and you have a chapter called Conform or Be Cast Out, which sounds an awful lot like persecution. Uh, cancel culture is the enforcement arm of the post-truth movement and ensures maximum compliance to the indoctrination your children receive. Maximum compliance. So the question is, what happens if you don't comply? If this is the compliance mechanism, then what happens if your children don't comply? What say you? Well, what happens to the kids is, and I know that my, my oldest son lived through this, the minute that they, stay, they, they fall out of lockstep, the minute that they get out of social justice orthodoxy, they are attacked viciously, mm -hmm. um, especially over social media, and uh, everywhere online. And, and, and this is really, this is the hardest thing for kids, because social uh, social cachet, being part of social groups, mm -hmm. is one of the most important things for teens. Right. So when they get tossed out of their, their social groups, when they get ostracized, when they get attacked online, it is absolutely devastating. And I do believe very much that part of what drives our kids to connect with social justice and, and move away from God is they're willing to believe whatever they need to believe to in be incorporated into social groups. To be accepted. Mm -hmm. To be accepted. Exactly. It's happening over the phone. Now, now, when that happens to kids, um, it's vicious, and their whole worlds fall apart, and they really don't know what to do. The hard, other hardest part about it, you know, if you had trouble with kids whenever we were back in school, you may see them in, like, science class, and you could avoid them for the rest of the day. Not online. It follows them. 24-7. Yeah. Interesting. The entire world knows about it. Digital compliance. Yes. Yeah. And what, and what that translates to, for the, and it, you know, for as adults and what is coming is, you know, everything, your bank accounts, everything about you is tied to the digital world, and they can force digital compliance. And if you think it's not hard. tied yet, just wait till Bill Gates gets through with his patent that was filed in 2020. That's where we're <laughs> heading, and the compliance factor is where the mark of the beast comes in unfortunately i hate to mention it but it's true that's exactly what the mark of the beast is about it's about forcing compliance to the godless system and if you don't embrace it you may have your children taken away you may uh, be forced into the uh, social gulag or worse and uh, this cancel culture thing is far more potent than anyone imagined. It's just the precursor to the new world government and its enforcement culture. 
So, let's go back then and see what you say about why this is so important. The, I hate to call it the philosophical basis. It's actually the false spiritual basis that is driving this. And here it is, right from your book. For Marxists, the highest form of moral virtue happens when people conform to the demands of societies designed to achieve equity through social justice, not through God's justice, through this new version of justice. Morality and virtue are achieved by conforming to society's rules, not by the moral refinement of individual character and biblical truth. Nothing could have been more clearly spoken. That is the foundation for all of it. And uh, I'm so glad that you uh, so clearly set that forth. Just two sentences or three sentences here lay the whole thing bare. And I'll tell you, uh, here's what I would say. Uh, and I've, I did this with my, my daughters. I've tried to do this with my grandchildren, still working on that. It's a work in progress, but uh, I'm trying to teach my, I taught our daughters and tried to teach our grandparents to dare to stand alone, to dare to stand, to dare to stand alone and not feel that they have to ingratiate themselves into the greater club of society. They want to be godly. They don't want to be uh, social uh, outcasts in that sense, but they're, they have to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what I've been teaching them to do for years. What are you doing with your kids? Well, I, doing the same thing, um, you know, trying to instill these, uh, you know, God's principles and show them, well, it's not so much teaching them God's principles, especially when they get teenage boys, you've got to, t- to get them to understand that we have to live these every moment in culture. Exactly. So what, what you said was so valuable. We have to stand on those principles, even if we stand alone. I mean, it was, could be Daniel, it could be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it could be Stephen. And it could uh, be the parents of our kids. And it should be the parents of our kids. There you go. 100%. And, and that's what we're losing today in culture with this relativism, that, that, that there is no exclusivity about the gospel, that God, you know, God, God's truth is objective, and it stands above all others. But, but we're, we don't have that, and if we don't have that, then we don't feel like we need to stand. If everybody has their own perspective, mm-hmm. which is coming through this right now, which is what postmodernity is saying, then your perspective is my perspective, and if I choose not to stand on the gospel's perspective, and I have my slant on the gospel's perspective, then that's what culture affirms. And and we don't know what happens from here, because we really can't imagine a post-Christian culture when every institution is built on principles other than the Word of God, and they come for everybody. Yeah. And that's entirely possible. Exactly. As a public school teacher back in 1998, uh, two years after I graduated from a Christian college, uh, I could see what was happening. And the principal of the school uh, was a professing Christian man, a Lutheran fellow. And uh, I sat with him in his office. 
and talked with him about what I saw happening then in education. And he, he tried to justify, tried to rationalize because he wants to protect his position, you see. He's a principal of a school. So I wrote him a lengthy letter. As I recall, it was two pages. And uh, the phrase that stands out to me, and I'll never forget it, here's what I said to him. We are driving new ideas, that can ideals that cannot be proven in the fires of reality. They are not tested in the fires of reality, cannot be proven, and will not be sustained in the fires of reality. Didn't matter. This is what we're doing. And that's uh, how things have uh, made their way uh, through our society, uh, starting there. It seems like so much starts in California, including the no-fault divorce system in 1968, that very same year. Uh, So I want to share something, Chuck. It might be helpful to you. When I grew up, I was taught a little song, and it goes like this. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. So important was that in my life that I taught it also to our daughters. Our oldest daughter then became so important in her life as a driving force that she named her first son Daniel. So I prepared a plaque, a beautiful plaque calligraphied with that very the words of that song on it which are hung on his wall. Several years ago, I was asked to speak to a large Christian school in Accra, Ghana, the capital of Ghana, West Africa. And guess what I talked about? Dare to be a Daniel. So here's what I did. There were 500 kids there. And uh, so I would, I introduced the song, and then I would talk about their life and a you know, the decisions that we have to make, and then I would interject the song again, and I would have them sing it with me. By the time we were through, we had sung the song at least four times together. Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. Two years later, I heard that they were still singing that song, Chuck. Amen. Maybe you're going to be singing that song after this program today. What do you think? (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes those songs bring truth to us in a way that that will stay with us better than a sermon. Exactly. You know, they do. And, uh, you know, but but see, what you just said is the message for our culture, meaning we have to, people have to understand, they have to stand. And I got to tell you, with all the cultural work I do and the speaking and the teaching, I've, I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with pastors who are just beside themselves with the direction of culture and the impact on the church. Right. But they are, they are so concerned about tackling this because churches have diversities of viewpoints today. And yeah. churches have, more, they have mortgages, they have budgets. And they don't know how to negotiate if they set up, upset the apple cart. So, in other and, words, they're willing to bargain with the culture, and they're more interested in pleasing the culture or the people than they are in pleasing God. Isn't well, that another way to put it? 
Some of them, 100%. But I will say this. I just, before we got on, I, I, I met with a group of pastors here locally who want to do one of my, I have a Hope for My Children conference that I do that breaks down why our kids are leaving, but walking away from God when they get out of the house, and we yeah. do to, to keep them connected. And but what and now these these this group are wonderful godly men. They like you know what we we got to do something. We're, or we'll start here. But what a lot of people have done is they've looked at this. They were caught so flat footed, and they're like, maybe if we hang out, this will all go away. And rather than be <laughs> in the forefront and go, I'm not upset in this apple cart right now. Maybe I'll I'll just be fortunate that this will be one of the many fads that happen within America, uh-huh. and it's gone. But the point of the book is no. This is a huge shift in our intellectual foundation, right? And it's not going anywhere soon. Yeah. So now they're kind of coming to the table, going, "Okay, what do we do? I don't even know where to begin." Yeah. Well, so it's almost a little too little too late, uh, and so it's time for us to uh, to buck up. And uh, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day; it wasn't destroyed in a day. And uh, a journey begins with the first step. And so what I would encourage parents to do and grandparents to seize this moment, carpe diem, seize this moment and begin to seriously, and I mean seriously, begin to train your children to stand alone, to be able to embrace truth and stand alone on it. It's not enough to send them to Sunday school. Now, here's the book. How do I talk to my kids about social justice? $13 $13 on our website, saveus.org. You can write to us. If you're writing, add $3 for, $5 for postage and handling. And Chuck, if people want to have you come speak to them, how would they do that? Well, they can go to my website, battlegroundideas.com. And that's battlegroundideas.com. Easy to find on the web. We are in a war of ideas right now. Um, and you can reach me through the site. You can also see the other other resources that I have okay. for for to help fight the culture war. All right, and again, it's battleground what? Battleground ideas. Battlegroundideas.com. dot com, and you can email right. me through that site. All right, very good. Thanks for joining us here, Chuck. Two Chucks doing war here together, friends. Become a partner. Send your gifts by faith to Save America Ministries. We're working hard, preparing the way of the Lord. You're listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church, declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home. All right, Chuck, we did do it.